So we're in Romans. Do you know if you are a Christian, you are important. You are of worth and value, and you are needed. But that being said, don't let it go to your head. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. That's not my message. That's Paul's. You'll see it as you turn with me to Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. He wants us all to feel of worth and value, but he doesn't want us to misinterpret our worth and value and be filled with pride. You'll see how he so powerfully expresses this. It's in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. He says, For the, through the grace given to me, I say. Paul, I know you will agree, was a key spokesman of Almighty God. This was his place. He knew it was his place to speak authoritatively truth given to him by Almighty God. He knew it, and he valued his place and his purpose and his gift, but in the process of so doing, he did not overvalue himself. He knew his position, his purpose, his gift was, as he so well expresses, through the grace of God. It was given to him by not merit or virtue or inherent sense of worth. It was given to him by the grace of God. So he says, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. I suppose he said that because we're prone to violate it. Apparently, that exhortation implies we got a problem. There is a proneness in us to do this very thing which Paul prohibits, and that is to think more of ourselves than we ought to. That's called pride. That's a problem. It's a human dilemma for crying out loud. You want to know something? Every one of us in here has this in common, if we're honest. In a sense, we each think we are the most important person in the world. Don't you agree? I mean, we do. We ju it's called being self-involved. Self, it's called human pride is what it is. And so the obvious manifestation of human pride is to overvalue our worth and our contribution in the body of Christ. But the other side of that coin, the other manifestation of pride is not to overvalue what we have to offer, but to undervalue it. And you know, that's an interesting form of pride as well. And I'll tell you why. When we choose to think less of ourselves than Almighty God does, then we are choosing our evaluation as over against God's, and that is human pride. And so with regard to ourselves, Paul exhorts us to think so as to have sound judgment. That's what he says in verse 3. As God has allotted to each, to each Christian, a measure of faith. So we're prone to either overvalue or undervalue ourselves with regard to our place in the body of Christ. But God has leveled the playing field, and he did so by, according to this verse, allotting to each of us a measure of faith. He's given to each of us a capacity to serve, and that makes us in the body all equals. Now, folks, a lot of damage can be done in a local church by a believer who over or undervalues himself or herself. So one who overvalues himself may seek to serve beyond what God has enabled him or her to do. I'll never forget a million years ago, I was in another church in another state. I'm emphasizing another church, another state, because it has nothing to do with anyone here. And... Uh, it was a small, kind of a country church, and uh, there was a lady who volunteered to sing solos. Um, well, it just seemed often, and uh, she was painful. I, I mean, it was, I'm pretty bad. Uh, I know that, and uh, uh, thank you for reinforcing that. You, you, you've shared that with me. And so, uh, but, but this lady was just horrific. It was just painful. And it wasn't just me. You could just look around and see people grimacing and all the rest. It was just, uh, it was just something to endure. And this lady, uh, 
She enjoyed hearing from herself, but she was the only, she was the only one, you see. So this poor lady, she was killing us for crying out loud. She overvalued herself and as a result found her putting herself in the wrong area of service for crying out loud. But the, 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 the a damage can be done not only by overvaluing ourselves, but also by undervaluing ourselves because the Christian may be your... This one, the Christian who undervalues himself or herself may resist doing what God wants you to do. And if you resist doing it, then the rest of us, you see, are robbed. So Paul goes on to say, verse 4, just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And so Paul is making recourse here, as he many times does, to the physical body as a metaphor for the spiritual body of Christ, which is the local church. So he's making application from the physical body to the church body. So if you really want to know uh, what the church is like or how it functions, you should uh, find a good-sized mirror and just stand in front of it. I mean, some of you do this anyway, but um, this make it a spiritual exercise. As you stand in front of it, you're actually getting a good picture of what the body of Christ, the local church, is like. For, for instance, it, it, this is true in three ways. Your body has many parts. Uh, some are visible, but many are sort of behind the scenes. They're invisible. Friends, you can't see my spleen right now, can you? Okay, thanks for sharing that. I'm glad. And, and, but, but that's a valuable part of one's anatomy, right? It's, you, a spleen does, I don't know what it does, but it does, maybe someone else could explain it to you later. But anyway, so, so this one thing you notice when you stand in front of a mirror, your body has many parts, so too does the body of Christ. Second, every part is important, even little things. The other day I got a, like, a, like a sort of a paper cut kind of a, thing here. I don't know if our cameras could zero in on my near fatal injury, but uh, right there, it's just a little thing. But it was just a goofy thing. You could hardly see it, and it bothers me like crazy. Every time you, you pick up a pen, a microphone, every time you brush your teeth, whatever it is, you, you are reminded of this goofy little thing, which reminded me that this little finger, this one appendage, is very, very important. So, so, so one thing, your body has many parts, just like the body of Christ. Two, every part is important. And thirdly, every part depends on the other part. This little injury to this little part affects everything else, for crying out loud. Every part depends on every other part. And so, as you evaluate your physical body, you're seeing what the body of Christ is like. Many parts, everyone being important, and everyone dependent on the other. Folks, the Christian life, uh, uh, learning from Paul, is a corporate experience. Did you know that? Everyone has to be personally, uh, individually redeemed. You made a decision. It was private, meaningful to you, for sure, when you said, Lord Jesus, please grant me forgiveness, which I am so sorely in need of, for I've sinned against you in thought and word and deed. Thank you for suffering and dying in my place. Thank you for rising from the dead. Now I ask you to take up your abode in my life. Forgive me. Would you grant me forgiveness? Take all this baggage, this sinful stuff, would you please? Don't look upon it. Would you cleanse me with your shed blood? I don't think any other payment is necessary. I accept the totality of what you've done for my sin. That's very personal, isn't it? You make that kind of decision. That's not a group thing. That's a private, personal thing. But thereafter, you're not saved from the world into a vacuum. You're saved into the body of Christ. So the Christian life, if you think about it, is essentially a corporate experience. Hence the repetition of this phrase throughout the New Testament, one another, one another. You know the person who says, of course I'm a Christian, but I don't need to go to church with those other people? Ah. I've got to tell you something. i got to wonder if that person really is redeemed. 
Because something happens when you get redeemed. You find out that there's value to belonging to, serving in, contributing to the body of Christ of which you now are a part. And so when you're saved, though it's personal and private and individual, you become part of a faith community and it, and it functions as an interdependent fellowship. So let me put it this way. Could you kind of look to the person or people seated next to you on either side? Just look them in the eye. Not for too long. It'll get weird. Just a little bit. I just want you to see if that person or those people are like you, um, Christians, those people um, belong to you and you belong to them. Isn't that an uncomfortable kind of a notion as you survey the field here. But that's essentially, I'm not making that up. Look what Paul says, verse 5. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually, look, it says right there, members one of another. So yeah, I, I belong to you and you belong to me. That's the way, I know it's this little bit of a scary and oppressive thought, but that's that's just the way. Here's the, we are on the same team, albeit playing different roles. So we're not, according to Paul, to get so puffed up by our own importance, nor are we to so undervalue ourselves that we take ourselves out of the game, thinking we do not really matter that much. Folks, we need each other because... We belong to each other. We're members of one another. So, in keeping with this, Paul makes application. Verse 6. Since we have gifts that differ, according to the grace given to us, he's speaking now of what we call spiritual gifts. They're not material, concrete. They're spiritual gifts. They come from above, from Almighty God. There are special abilities given to believers by God's grace for the sole purpose of ministry and service to others in the body of Christ. Spiritual gifts are mentioned in four particular places in the New Testament. They're mentioned here in Romans 12, as you will soon see, but also in 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. And many of us make the error of, uh, error of consulting all four of those lists to find our gift. Some succeed, others go away discouraged. Why? Because they're not meant to be exhaustive lists. They're a sampling of areas of service. And so not every gift that you have to offer is specifically defined and named. And so if you're laboring over this, I must not have one because I don't know what to name it. Not to worry. That's not the point of these lists of spiritual gifts. They're a sampling of areas of service. A spiritual gift is not the same as a natural talent. Not at all. See, a natural uh, talent is also given by God, but a natural talent is given by God through parents, whereas a spiritual gift is given by God through his spirit. A natural talent is given at birth, but a spiritual gift is given at the second birth, conversion. A natural talent can be something that is used to benefit people in general, but a spiritual gift is meant specifically to benefit other members of the body of Christ. The Greek word for spiritual gift, perhaps you know this, is charisma, from the word charis, which means grace. Therefore, we can know a spiritual gift is given by God's grace. It's, they're unmerited. They're not given to a group of spiritual elite or aristocrats. They're not evidence of one's greater spirituality or worth. They come to each of God's kids by God's grace. And that's why Paul began this section by saying, for through the grace given to me, he didn't lay claim to his apostleship. He didn't credit his uh, his background, his schooling, or anything like that. He said, by the gift given to me by God's grace. 
Now, since every Christian is given at least one spiritual gift, every Christian is important, meaning the rest of us need you. We need you to use your spiritual gift here. Something is missing if you are missing. Something is missing if you do not use your spiritual gift. No Christian is ungifted. Every believer has a place and a purpose in the body of Christ. And though personal satisfaction often comes when you are serving in your area of giftedness, that's not the primary purpose for which God has given you the gift. Its primary purpose is clearly declared in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, where it says, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The gifts may satisfy, but they're not given for personal edification. They're given for the edification of others to whom you manifest your spiritual gift. They're given for the common good. So the purpose of spiritual gifts is to build up and to strengthen and to courage, encourage other Christians. In other words, gifts given by God are to be given to others. Hence, Paul says exactly what he does in verse 6. Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. You are to give away that which God has given to you. So spiritual gifts mean something we may not want to accept. Spiritual gifts diversely spread across the body of Christ mean that uh, I am weak and I am strong at the same time. I'm strong in the area of my gifting, but I am weak in the areas in which I am not gifted. You see, that creates a measure of interdependence. We have strengths and weaknesses and need each other for that reason. Therefore, my job and yours is to minister in the body of Christ out of my strength, gifting, and, and I am to realize at the same time, I am very much dependent upon the ministry of the rest of the body here in my many areas of weakness. That's how it works. So then, how can we be good stewards of these marvelous gifts that God has given to each of us if we cannot identify the specific gift he has given to each of us. How do you identify your spiritual gift? It's a big question. Um, three diagnostic questions have helped me. Maybe they'll help you. Ask yourself, if you're on a quest to determine your spiritual gift, ask yourself these three questions. Here's the first. Am I doing anything? I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but you can't discover your gift so much by studying as much as by serving. So you sort of discover your spiritual gift in the process of, of serving. So I remember one vacation Bible school year, I was asked to serve in a certain capacity with the little kids. And I discovered I had no interest, no value, no desire, no capacity, no patience to mess around with those kids. They have cooties. You know what I'm saying? I just discovered I'm not really called to the children's ministry, except to wave to them when on the bus going to camp. Have a good time. Take your time and getting back. Enjoy yourself. So you see, but in the, in the process of serving, I figured that out. You cannot figure out your gift if you've made the Christian life a spectator sport. Those who are not actively engaged, participating in service in the local church will probably never find with certainty what their spiritual gift is. God defines that in the course of trying out different things. So the first question is, am I doing anything? The second, am I doing what suits me? You know, common sense is not ungodly. Uh, it's okay to use your head. Why in the world would Almighty God, who is so good, 
Um, why would he give us a gift in an area we despise, we hate? That wouldn't be a gift. That would be, that would be sort of a curse. And so, um, if you're serving in a particular area and for you it is drudgery, you just sort of found out it doesn't, it doesn't suit you. And in addition, do others recognize that you are suited to the particular thing you are doing? I mean, if nobody else recognizes what you think is your gift, you probably don't have it. You know what I mean? So are you suited for it? Do you feel suited for it? Do others tell you you are? Now, here's another good barometer to determine whether you have a gift in an area. If you have a spiritual gift in a certain area, you can use it quite a lot, and you'll get tired at certain points. But then the remedy for your fatigue is simply rest. You take a day off, a night off, you take a good nap, whatever it is. And then you get sufficiently rested, and you're back in the game. You're ready to use your spiritual gift again. On the other hand, if you're operating in an area in which God doesn't want you to operate, you don't have gifting in that area, you too can get tired. But for you, the solution to your fatigue is not a day off, a night off, or a good nap. Why? Because you've exhausted yourself emotionally, not just physically. The cure for physical fatigue is a good night's rest. The cure for emotional fatigue is a little more complicated. And one of the ways you'll know you're serving in an area you should not be serving in is if you're not recouping your energy. You're expending yourself, but it's not coming back at you even as after a vacation. That means God's not given you the grace to serve in that particular area. If you're serving in the right area, as you expend energy, God breathes life back into you so you're ready to do it again after a good night's rest. Third question. Am I doing what bears fruit? I mean, God gives us our spiritual gifts to do that very thing, to produce spiritual fruit. So, if there's no fruit in that what you're doing, what you're doing is probably outside of your area of giftedness. So those are three diagnostic questions you could use to try to determine whether you're serving in the right place. Now, Paul, at this point, uh, beginning in verse 6, gives us a list, a, a sample list of some of these spiritual gifts. The first one he mentions there, you see it, is prophecy. And what is that? Well, I don't know for sure. Because uh, Paul doesn't tell us too much. I think what it means, uh, receiving a word from God and telling others what you've done, God. But in, in such fashion that it's with passion and strength and conviction and leads to life change. There's two aspects to the biblical gift of prophecy. One is sort of predictive, foretelling. Someone who, by God's grace, knows about a future contingency and tells us in the present what's going to happen in the future. You see a lot of that in the Old Testament. The prophets there many times, not always, many times could tell people the future, not by tea leaves and anything occultic, by revelation from God. But as you look to the manifestation of the gift of prophecy in the New Testament, you do not see it primarily being used to predict the future, not foretelling, but forthtelling. That's when the New Testament equivalent of Old Testament prophets simply spoke into people's lives what God told them to tell them. So this gift, prophecy, is normally the communication of revealed truth, not speculation about the future, revealed truth in a manner that convicts and builds up those who hear. Then in verse 7, Paul mentions the second one, service. He says, if service in his serving. The word serving is a term that means, uh, this is how it's translated, to wait on tables. Isn't that good? Do you, do you know we get the word deacon from this word? Every deacon must have an interest, ours do, in serving. That doesn't mean everyone who serves has to be a deacon, but every deacon has to have a servant heart has to be willing to wait on tables. The person with the spiritual gift of serving is someone who just doesn't seek the limelight, doesn't even like it. When this person is praised, complicated, and uh, complimented, and thanked, 
This person gets jittery and uncomfortable. This person likes serving behind the scenes, doesn't like to be recognized for it quite. This person is simply someone who, in a very committed, faithful, and reliable way, goes about his business or her business finding ways to be of service to others. It's the spiritual gift of serving. Then Paul mentions teaching in the next phrase. The gift of teaching involves communication of all of Scripture. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, not just favorite passages, all of Scripture. And the gift of teaching involves all that goes in to communicating biblical truth, like researching the text, organizing one's conclusions, and presenting what one found in such manner that the listener is caused to understand and apply what has been taught. It's the gift of teaching. Then verse 8, another gift, the gift of exhortation. That actually is the gift of encouragement. That's what the word exhortation means, encouragement. Encouragers, thank God for them, are people who instinctively, well, not really, by God's grace, gravitate towards those who are struggling. They could, in a crowded room, just see, just sense, just know who's trying to run the race but is running out of gas. They can sense someone who's losing hope. The person with the gift of encouragement is someone who goes over to that person and puts courage to go on back into the life of that struggling one. That's what the word exhortation means, to put courage into the life of a struggling Christian. That's the literal meaning of the word. But to put courage back in, thank God for those with the gift of encouragement in this particular church. Then Paul speaks about giving next. All Christians are invited and commanded at the same time to engage in the discipline of giving. It is both an obligation and a great joy and privilege. Nobody is relieved of the responsibility and joy of giving. However, there are some givers who clearly are specially and specifically anointed by God with a gift of such generosity that they derive such delight and satisfaction in giving, usually sacrificially, that it goes beyond normal limits. And this is a person who's not necessarily wealthy. This is not someone who necessarily is giving out of his or her surplus of wealth but even out of what one's meager substance might be. This is someone for whom 10% is a terrible limitation. This is someone who wants to give hilariously, not in an obligatory, legalistic way. Don't set a limit on my giving. I want to give in an unlimited way. This is the gift of giving. Maybe you haven't, thank God for you. And then Paul speaks about the gift of leadership next. He who leads, he says, and that literally means to stand in front of a group. Not the way I am now. It means to stand in front of a group who are willing to follow you into positive and productive spiritual directions. A leader is somebody who doesn't lead autocratically, tyrannically. A a leader, a gifted leader, is someone who takes the lead in shepherding, in serving the people, setting the pace in serving, setting the pace in shepherding. A shepherd leads, doesn't beat the sheep. And he leads in such fashion that people know if we follow that person's lead, we will have a better chance of accomplishing the great commission objectives that God has given us. A leader is the, who has a spiritual gift of leadership, 
uh, is someone whom people are willing to follow. There are some people who say, I'm called to lead a local church, but no one's following. That person probably has misdiagnosed his spiritual gift. Folks, I got to tell you, and I'm glad to do this because our pastor's not with us tonight. As I was going through this, I was thinking, holy Toledo, we have a pastor with the clearest manifestation of the gift of leadership of anyone I have ever met. The gift of leadership. Look, look, look. Setting the pace in service and in shepherding, but you don't feel pressured, beat down, or, or uh, you don't feel that he's lording anything over you, do you? He never asks us to do one thing he is not willing to do. You know, I, I, uh, I know some of us do what he does, for instance, on Sundays. Sundays is an exhausting day for crying out loud. You got to smile at everyone, even in the people you don't like. Um, he, he preaches two times, which means he's had to prepare. He preaches two times. They're always encouraging words of exhortation. Uh, in between, he goes into the hospitality room where there's a long line of people, and he greets everyone as if that one is a VIP, a very important person. And then after the first group he greets, he will get back in here for the second sermon with as much energy and enthusiasm and care as the first. Then he'll charge back into the hospitality room for to greet lovingly another line of people and meet them and uh, uh, see what their needs are and match them up with resources of the church. And then he might run off to lunch, and it's usually with somebody, maybe a guest for the first time, maybe one of you, maybe one of the staff he's going to rebuke for something. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. So he'll do that. So it's kind of, if I could put it this way, sort of a working lunch. And then in the afternoon, you know what the senior pastor of Sagemont Church does? He will call every new visitor on that day. He will take a stack of cards, because we have lots of visitors every Sunday, and he will call everyone. And some of them, when they join our church, will say, everything was wonderful. What a facility. Such beautiful worship. And it was such a great message. But what really got me is that the senior pastor of a church of that kind called me personally. I think I, I'm not overstepping my ground to tell you, I don't know of another senior pastor of a church of this size in the entire country who does that. So um, he gets tired. He's human. But after a little bit of rest... You see, God will breathe back into him energy, and he'll start the next week again. That's a mark of the spiritual gift of leadership. Also, you and I are willing to follow him, right? Of course, because something in us has persuaded us, oh, God, your hand is upon him, and we believe we can better accomplish what you want us to by following the lead of this under-shepherd, under the authority of the chief shepherd, and so... And so we do. By the way, today's our pastor's birthday. Did you know, you know that? Um, and he's not with us uh, tonight because he's attending to some family uh, medical issues. Uh, and so uh, we should pray for him right now. L would you join me? Uh, Lord Jesus, we're speaking about the pastor you have appointed and gifted and blessed us with. Oh, sure, we get frustrated with him from time to time. Are you kidding? Sure, oh, God, we see his humanity. He's just a human. But, oh, God, what a great human. What a faithful servant. How clearly our pastor knows what his strengths are and how undistractedly he serves us in light of his strengths. You've given him, amongst other things, the gift of leadership. Thank you for breathing life back into him when he expends his life on one such as us. No, oh God, we pray right now 
you would supply all of his needs, especially on this day, the day of his birth. Thank you for his birthday. Thank you for his second birth. What a blessing to the body of Christ he is. Know God as he tends to family needs today. Still, I pray it would be a happy birthday. And then I pray, oh God, you as great physician would tend to the needs of our pastor's family as only you can. Please bless him and his family. Even during this process, our goal, what we'd like to see, is total and complete healing. But you could bless them even in the way there. You could bless them even in the process. Even as we're meeting tonight without him, we pray, oh God, you would pastor our pastor. Please encourage the one who encourages us. Please make good use of this time in his life as he has a little break from this family which he loves so much as he's ministering to his own. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Gift of leadership. Do you know all the studies of pastors indicate that a satisfying um, tenure as pastor is most typical of those pastors who uh, have the gift of leadership, not preaching. Most pastors say, I have the gift of preaching. But that's a good thing. You ought to be able to communicate truth to people. But the gift that keeps you in the pastorate longest, so show the studies, is the gift of leadership, you see. And the evidence is our pastor who's been here for uh, 5,000 years. I'm, I'm rounding off just a little bit. Gift of leadership. And then uh, the last gift Paul speaks of, mercy. He who shows mercy. Do it with cheerfulness. That gift enables a believer to reach out to others who are hurting with the love of Christ. And this person, uh, you'll know you have the gift of mercy when you act like God. Meaning, just as God shows great compassion for those who are suffering and needy, so too you do. You do what God does. You respond to needy and broken people with compassion and not with a judgmental spirit. You do not have the gift of mercy. If when you see a needy person, you go to that person and say, this is another fine mess you've gotten yourself into. See, you probably don't have the gift of mercy. That's probably not, you know, or, or if you just rush in, you don't even know the person. Let me share with you Romans 8, 28. God uses all things for the good. You have no idea what's going on in the life of this person. You just want to fix them and get it over with so you don't have to get your hands dirty. You probably don't have the gift of mercy. Listen, if you're visiting people in the hospital and you are a sourpuss, you probably ought to stay home, do something else. You don't have the gift. See, it says, manifest your gift of mercy with cheerfulness, not a judgmental, critical spirit, not like a dried-up prune, you know, this kind of. Someone who's hurting benefits greatly by a need meter with a smile on their face. If you have the gift of mercy, you're smiling at someone who's hurting. You're not laughing at their pain. You're approving of them, even in the struggle. You're not trying to quickly move them out of it as if something is wrong with them. You're willing to hang in there with them until it passes by God's grace. And that's what you show, grace and mercy. So those are the gifts Paul lists here. Do you notice Paul doesn't really explain any of these gifts? I've stumbled over it, trying to make sense of each but do you notice Paul does not say, here's what the gift of prophecy specifically is. Nor does he say, here's what the gift of giving is. He doesn't define or explain. You know what he says? Don't worry about it. Get busy serving the body of Christ. So if prophecy is your gift, do it. If serving, serve. If teaching, teach. If encouragement, encourage. If giving, well, give. If leadership, lead. And if mercy, do it with the smile on your face. In other words, Paul is saying, don't wait around for some mystical experience. I'm sitting here on a rock until, oh God, you signal to me what you want me to do with riding across the sky. Good night. You better get a comfortable rock. You're going to be there. That's not how it works. God moves us into specific areas of service while we're in 
the process of serving. So don't wait to have full understanding of all the spiritual gifts. Good night, churches divide over these things. Let's just face it. We don't understand them fully. We just don't. That's not the point. Don't labor over it. But here's what Paul wants us to do. Get busy serving. Do that, in other words, which is obvious to you as something which needs to be done. Do that which you feel compelled and capable of doing. That's what you do. You don't wait for an invitation. You don't wait to figure out what, what does prophecy mean in the original Greek and all this kind of... Just do what you feel compelled to do, capable of doing. Try it on for size. See if it suits you. See if it bears fruit. See if others recognize it. Let me offer this just for your reflection. Do you know there's a difference between gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit? Big difference. The gifts of the Spirit refer to the service of a believer, but the fruit of the Spirit refers to the character of a believer. So we're obviously to value spiritual gifts, but I think even more so we are to value the fruit of the Spirit in us. You see, you see, the spiritual gift, which is for service, is wonderful. But if our character doesn't go with it, it won't be used effectively. Someone said, I think someone said this, but, well, someone is about to say it. Um, do, do not let your spiritual gift take you to a place where your spiritual character will not keep you. Isn't it horrible when we hear of a very gifted a minister, somebody doing something who falls into sin, uh, acts of immorality or financial misappropriation or who knows what. Uh, uh, that's a person, it seems to me, whose marvelous, blessed spiritual gifting has run ahead of their character. It's a terrible thing when people a little too young say, I'm called to do this, to do that. But anyway, uh, yeah, I think God wants to keep us like an arrow in the quiver until he pulls us out to use us as a choice vessel. I remember I used to minister with a missions group called the Navigators when I was in the military, the Navigators. And uh, I was with them for like three years doing stuff, setting up chairs, you know, and ordering books and real glamorous stuff. And I was mad about the whole deal. I was just kind of thinking, man, I'm like a bonus baby. Anyone can set up chairs. So uh, finally they said to me, hey, at this next conference, we want you to share your testimony. Take five to seven minutes, you know, and boom, 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 and all the rest. Okay, great. Here we go. So I did that. And uh, then a long time went on. They never asked me to do anything else, any platform thing except sweep it until after that. After that. And I realized now, though I resented it then, they so loved me. They wouldn't give me something they felt my character wasn't ready for. So you could have spiritual gifts, but not the fruit of the Spirit to go along. That you have to grow and develop. And I'm so grateful they tested. You know, if you're not faithful in little things, how could you be entrusted with other things? That kind of. So I'm a little concerned when we advance people a little too soon through the ranks. We haven't had a chance to test out their their character. More important, it seems to me, to finish the race well with a solid godly character than to establish one's own fantastic ministry only to have it end in disgrace because your character couldn't keep you where your spiritual gifts brought you. So, one final thought. Do you know a lot of people don't come to church anymore? I don't know if you knew this. And a lot of people are down. Christians on the local church, very critical. The church isn't doing that. The church isn't doing this. You know, that kind of deal. Um, you know, I think those people are really not seeing what they ought to see. For instance, if you open your eyes and look at this, for instance, this local church, you will be so enthused, exhilarated, and encouraged when you see the array of areas of service people are involved in in this little church. If we had time, we could go around and say, those of you who are serving here, what is it that you do? Can you just share? It's just such a variety. It's so diverse. And you see this whole manifestation of all the gifts mentioned 
in the New Testament in this particular church. And you get excited. So, so then instead of saying, uh, uh, camping out on what the church is not doing, so you could always win that argument. <laughs> because no church is doing everything. So, but, but instead of saying, well, you're, we're not doing this, we're not doing that, are you not seeing what we are doing? Those lady in blue shirts that they uh, must have got on sale at Walmart, I think. Betsy, I'm telling you the truth. These ladies are all going to Kenya to serve a very needy group of people of all ages. It's a long trip. They're going at personal sacrifice. Those who are uh, married are leaving their spouses behind to leftovers and pizza and all the rest. They're doing that. I was just talking to David Post over there, you all know, was involved in a, well, a life-threatening motorcycle accident. And here he is right here, walking on his own two feet, had punctured lung and all the rest, and, uh, fluid in the other. And here he is, thank God. You know what he did the other day? He went to hospital in Galveston to visit another biker. David is the president of Hellfighters. That's a different kind of ministry, isn't it? He went to visit another biker, also involved in a very serious motorcycle accident. Not part of the club, but uh, David got a call from someone in New Mexico. They want to take care of one another. And David went. He's not fully recovered yet. You know, you look around. Here's Judith right here in the front. Judith takes donated fabrics, remnants, and she and her team uh, make the most beautiful dresses, some of which ha have already made their way to Africa. So fine ministries is what is what she is involved in. Wade, okay, let me get a better example. <laughs> it's exciting, folks, when you look, and you say, well, I, I couldn't do what Judith is doing or what David is doing, and I don't feel called to go to, to, to Africa as these ladies. You don't have to. You don't have to. You just have to say, oh, God, what is my place? I have as much value in the body as they do. I've taken myself out of the game. I've undervalued myself. No, oh, God, I'm not going to wait anymore to find my area of opportunity. I'm just going to get in the flow. I'm going to do something, and then I'm going to find out if you confirm it, I'll stay with it. If you confirm it as my gift, and if not, I'll do something else. To me, it's very encouraging to be in a church such as this. And even though this is a big church made up of men, I'm looking at Jerry Sicandi there too. Jerry is retired only from secular work. And in his retirement, he's in full-time Christian work, in missions. You look around and you see the variety of the gifts. It's just, it's just a phenomenal kind of a thing, it seems to me. Now, uh, I'm of the opinion that regardless of the size of the church, if every Christian is using his or her spiritual gift, that church will be able to do everything God wants them to do. It's only when the Christian excludes themselves that the rest of the church is robbed. So let me close with this kind of weird, somewhat humorous illustration. There was an actual meeting of professionals, people who help other people. And at the meeting, two researchers gave a report of a study they did uh, on how uh, members of symphony orchestras across the country perceived each other. Kind of a weird study. Probably was government funded, I'm sure. And here's what they concluded. They concluded that the percussionists were viewed by other musicians as being insensitive, unintelligent, hard of hearing, yet fun-loving. Those are drummers. String players were seen to be arrogant, stuffy, and unathletic. Um, the orchestra members overwhelmingly chose uh, the word loud as the primary adjective to describe the brass players. Woodwind players seemed to be held in the highest esteem. Uh, they were described as quiet and meticulous, though a bit egotistical. So the question is this, with such a diversity of personalities, perceptions, and talents, uh, one wonders how it is a symphony orchestra could ever come together to make such wonderful music. The answer is simple. It is this, regardless of their differences in personality and temperament and gifting and perception of one another, they subordinate their feelings to the leadership 
of the conductor. Folks, under the guidance of the conductor, they play beautiful music. Our conductor is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the head. We are his body. None of us is unnecessary. None of us is more important or less than any other. We are different. We value different things. We have a passion for different things. We have different personalities and ways and ideas and all the rest. We must sublimate them. All of these things. We're entitled to our preferences, our opinions, and all that. We must subordinate them to the leadership of the conductor who wants us to reach the world for his glory. And though we be diverse, if we be unified as ones who follow the leader, the Lord Jesus, can you imagine the beautiful music we can make together? Lord Jesus, thank you for saving us into the body of Christ. You're the head. We're the body. Each member necessary, dependent on the other. Thank you for those members of the body in this local fellowship who serve in their area of gifting so faithfully, so fruitfully. We all benefit from it. And for those still yet not finding area of service, help them, would you, Lord Jesus? Open doors of opportunity for them confirm their areas of service or not until they find the place that they're suited for, the area of service that suits them and that benefits the body of Christ. Thank you for the local church, though some are finding it to be unnecessary and discouraging. It is your body. It is your doing. It is your strategy for reaching the world. Thank you for this local church and the shepherd you have entrusted to it over all these years. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.